0: Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10, if you would, please. And this evening, we're coming to our third message in this 10th chapter. And we began by discussing a controversy that is in verse number 1. And Revelation is really no stranger to controversy. There are many, many different interpretations of this book, lots of variations of opinion. And if we were to stop and try to consider every single controversy that's in the book, then we would just spend all of our time uh, just in a few passages because it would take a long time to climb through everything. But we believe in taking a futuristic view of Revelation, which means that nearly the entire book, we think, refers to events that will take place in the future. And the futuristic view is a literal view, and so that interpretation actually cuts down on a vast number of the variations that are proposed by other forms of interpretation. The futuristic view is the most comprehensive of all and cohesive of all interpretations, and they really don't vary too much on the major details. But there are some minor variations, and things like the angel here in uh, Revelation chapter 10 verse 1 is one of those controversies that brings a difference of opinion. Now, before I spend a few minutes this evening reviewing that controversy, let me just remind you of where we are in this book. We're talking about the tribulation period, and this is that seven-year period of time that begins right after uh, Jesus comes back and calls all of the saints home to be home with him. He raptures the church And then there's this awful time of tribulation that follows in which God sets about to redeem the world from the curse of sin. The first three and a half years of the tribulation is sort of what you would call a warm-up to the last three and a half years because the last half of the tribulation is called Great Tribulation And it's unlike anything the world has ever seen before. This is what Jesus says about it in Matthew 24. He said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. As we've been studying this, we've learned that God's plan to redeem the world is outlined uh, in a scroll that contains seven seals. And Christ begins to open up those seven seals, and as he breaks each seal in order, there's a new judgment that comes upon the earth. So he breaks those seals one by one until he comes to the seventh seal, and that's where that last part of the tribulation starts, the last three and a half years. The seventh seal consists of seven trumpet judgments, and each of these trumpets is blown by an angel and One after one, as the angels blow the trumpets, another wave of judgment comes that's worse than the one before. After the sixth trumpet is blown, there's a break in the action. And this is where we are in chapter number 10. This is just before the blowing of the seventh trumpet, and that will occur in chapter 11, verse number 15. So we're talking here about an interlude. This is one of those parenthetical sections of Revelation where, well, the action stops for just a minute, and there are explanations that are given to us, some things that are explained that are going on concurrently with the opening of the seals and with the blowing of the trumpets so we 're going to begin reading tonight at verse number one, and then we 'll take up some of the other verses as we go through this message tonight so let 's just stand if you would please, and read just this one verse to get us started, John chapter or revelation, rather chapter ten. Verse number one, and John is writing: "I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire." Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We just ask you that you would bless as we study your word tonight. Help us to understand some things better here, and Lord. As I preach this message tonight, the thing that I really want to get across to our people tonight is the immensity, the greatness of the God that we serve. Bless in this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In verse number one, we have this controversy about the identity of this angel. Uh, Some identify the angel as Jesus Christ. Why do they do that? Well, we begin by discussing the appearance of the angel. It took us two weeks to discuss this, and there are good Bible commentators who take different sides on who this angel is. There are four characteristics that are given to us in verse number one that lead many people to believe that this is Jesus. Now, let's just list those again. The angel is clothed with the cloud. The angel has a bow on his brow. The angel shines as the sun, and the angel has feet like fire. And all four of those characteristics are ones that we can find throughout the Bible as descriptions of the Son of God, descriptions of Jesus. Now, there is good evidence, as we look at this text, to believe that this is, that the angel is Jesus. And if you didn't hear the previous messages where we talked about this, then I would encourage you to get a a CD or listen to it on the Internet. And remember that the word angel here simply means a messenger. And those who believe that this angel is Christ do not in any sense believe that he is a created angel, that Jesus is a created being. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He, he's one with the Father. He's part of the Trinity. He is the Creator, not one who was created. Here we see him, if in fact it is Jesus, as the messenger of God, just as he is the manifestation of the Father. The other view says that this is a created angel. And I favor the view that this is Michael the archangel. And there's really nothing that we find in any of those four descriptions that we've just mentioned that would prevent this angel from being identified as a created angel. And there's good evidence on this side as well, especially when we consider that verse number 1 says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. And as we discuss this, we learn that the word another there literally means one of the same kind. So this is an angel of the same kind, the same kind as those other angels that blow the trumpets. But this description uh, shows us or indicates to us that this angel is stronger than the other angels. And that's what leads me to believe that this is Michael. And Michael is perhaps the greatest of all angels, the most powerful of all angels. And most likely we would consider him to be the counterpart of Lucifer. Michael's name means one like God. And so the descriptions in verse number 1 could identify the angel as Michael. Well, we're going to move on from that controversy now. And and for the sake of our study, we're we're going to take the position that this is Michael the archangel. And if you've decided, after listening to the two messages previous to this one, that this is not Michael after all, but this is the Lord Jesus Christ, that's fine. You're welcome to that opinion. I think it's a good opinion, and it really doesn't change any material doctrine, doctrine at this point. So let's go on then, and let's discuss number two, the assurances of the angel. This angel comes down from heaven. In verse number two, we read, And he had in his right hand, or he had in his hand, rather, a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices, and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer." If you've ever heard that saying that actions speak louder than words, well, you couldn't find that saying more aptly demonstrated than what we read right here in these verses. This angel does not come speaking assurances, his actions speak for him. There's great assurance in what this angel does. The angel comes down to the earth and he plants his feet. One foot stands upon the sea, another foot stands upon the earth, and When this verse says that this is a mighty angel, it means what it says. This is an awesome angel. It's a huge angel, an angel so large that his feet can span the sea and also to stand upon the dry land. And this angel is a symbol of God. It's a symbol of God who is in control. So the first assurance that this angel speaks by his actions is the strength of the sovereign. This is the mighty power of God on display. Now, we've seen the strength of God in many different ways throughout our study. We've seen that in the judgments that have come. We've seen how God is able to twist and bend the laws of nature as He pleases. We see how uh, God is able to control earthquakes and volcanoes. He speaks and the stars of heaven obey Him. He rains down fire and brimstone from heaven. He controls both the armies of heaven and also the armies of hell. And we see how that God is even in control of Satan. Uh, Satan is turned against his own kingdom. God uses him to fight against his own kingdom and then finally to bring his kingdom to destruction. But here we have just this visible manifestation of the mightiness of God and the immensity of God. You know we're always preaching about how big that God is and I don't know if that's really something that we can put into our minds and really understand what that means. We can't picture that very clearly. But a display like this, this angel, who is a representative of God, standing with one one foot on the earth and one on the sea, that is simply a vivid picture of God's enormity. So this angel stands there, and he stands to show us that God is is the one who is in control of the earth. And with all the things that have happened, with the political power and the acumen of the Antichrist, it seems like he's the one who's in control. But here this angel comes and he shows those who are left on the earth, those who have become believers through the witness of those 144,000 who have received Christ as Savior. He comes as one to speak to the people of God or show the people of God that God is the one who directs it all. And seeing that visible manifestation of this angel is the strength of the sovereign. It puts into their mind how strong that God really is. And then that brings to the people... Comfort. We have the comfort of Christians. There's great assurance here that God is in control, and it translates into comfort for Christians. And I'll explain that a little bit more in just a moment. But just to see this mighty angel standing there with one foot over here on the oceans of the world and one foot over here on the dry land, that's great comfort to show the people that God is actually the one who is in control. And when he stands this way this way, spanning the earth and the sea, that is a symbol that God is claiming the earth. Well that reminds me of uh, my younger days when I was in elementary school. I remember when I was in fifth grade, one of the things that I really loved we were studying world history, and I was just really interested in explorers i 'm talking about these men who who sailed and came from uh, Europe and came to this to this part of the world and explored many different places of the world, unknown places, in the 16th and 17th centuries, and they were looking for new discoveries. And I remember that when I was in the fifth grade, that I was so interested in that that I would just read uh, just about anything that I could get my hands on. And so when we came to this particular part of world history... The teacher said, well, you've sure read a lot of things about this. And she actually told me, she said, I think that you know more about the subject than I do. Would you like to take a turn at teaching the class and tell them what you've learned? But I was really interested in that. I mean, I was just enamored with Columbus and Magellan. I like to read about Cabot and Cook and Drake and Hudson and Vespucci. I mean, I thought about these men as they came to the New World. And when they came, they would set their foot upon the land. They would plant a flag there for for England or France or for Spain or for Italy. And I just get the picture in my mind as I read that. But I think it's even greater than that because I go back to the Old Testament and I think about the children of Israel when they were ready to enter into the promised land. Here's what God said to them in Deuteronomy. He said, "'Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the uttermost sea shall your coast be.'" There shall no man be able to stand before you. For the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon, as he has said unto you. Now think about those verses, and they're really almost enough to send cold chills up your spine to think that it's God, our God, who's ordering and directing everything. God is a strong God, sovereign God, who compasses sea and land. He holds all things in his hands. And though it may many times look like the enemy is winning, the enemy's not, because all that God is doing is biding his time. And when I think about these things, I also think about what a shame it is that there are so many people who serve such a puny God. They serve, or their theology is to serve a God who, who has, a man has wrapped around his finger, God's authority has been stripped even to where some people believe that God is not even sovereign in the salvation of souls. And so people become anguished when you uh, preach about things like election and predestination because they don't want God to be in control. They're not content that, that God always does justly, God always does rightly. But here we see the angel, God's representative. He stands on the sea and on the land, and he claims the earth. And so it's no wonder that Nebuchadnezzar said... He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and, above the inha- and uh, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Now we notice in verse number 2 that the angel has a little book in his hand. And here's where we can get into controversy again. And I promise you I'm not going to preach two messages on this little book. Uh, let me just say that I believe that this is the same book that we find in chapter 5. In other words, what we're talking of here is Redemption Scroll. And at this point, it's a fully open book. And that's because all of the seals of the book have been broken. And here it's called a little book because that's in comparison to the size of the angel. It's a mighty angel, a big angel. And this is a little book because a little bit later on uh, in next week's lesson, we'll see that John is told to eat this book up. Now, if it was a big book the size of the angel, then that'd be a big problem. I mean, that'd be worse than trying to eat that, what is that, 24-ounce porterhouse at Cattleman's. I don't know how he would get it down. But in verse number 3, this mighty angel cries out, and the sound is like the roaring of a lion. You know, it's said that when a lion roars in the jungle, that the roar can be heard for miles. Whenever you go to a zoo and you hear a lion roar, that's really a lion yawning. That's not a lion roaring. Because when a lion roars in its natural habitat, that that sound just goes out, it's impressive, and it's a warning to all the other animals. So the angel cries out, and as he does, the Bible says here that there is the sound of seven thunders. We don't know exactly who's speaking there, but there are seven thunderous voices that John hears, and when he hears what they have to say, he understands the message and he begins to write it down. So he starts writing. I mean, that's, that's what, he's, what he is. He's the amanuensis of God, and so he's going to write this down. And this voice from heaven, another voice, comes down, presumably that's God, and tells him that he's not to write what these seven thunderous voices said. Now, Let me make a point about that is that John didn't write them down. And if you've taken time to read other things about Revelation and other, what other people have said about it, you'll come across a lot of people who will try to explain to you exactly what it was that these seven thunderous voices said. But the point is that John didn't write it down. And God kept it all a secret. So I'm not going to try to tell you what they said because I don't know. Neither does anybody else know. God says don't write it down. So God and John are the only ones who know what those voices said. And one of the things the Bible says, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord. There's some things that we just can't find out. We're not going to know. You know, I have a hard time trying to figure out things like how do you fit God's election into human responsibility? How do you put that all perfectly together? And I just don't know. That's one of God's secrets. It's one of the things that that God hasn't revealed, and I just believe it. I don't try to do any gyrations to get around it because I can't reconcile it all. I just believe it because that's what God said. So these things are secret, and if God sees fit to tell us about them when we get to heaven, I'll be interested in hearing it. I'll be interested in finding out what these seven thundering voices said if God's going to reveal that. I'll be interested in that with a lot of things that I don't understand. But all of this points to the immensity of God. God is doing something here, and he's giving a visual display of his immensity and his control. So the angel sets a foot on the sea and a foot on the land, and he swears by God who created heaven and earth. And that's just comforting to know that the sovereign God is in control. All things are working out according to God's plan. Now, the third thing that we see here is the announcement of the angel. The angel swears by God who lives forever and ever. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And the angel swears there should be time no longer. Now, what does he mean by that, time no longer? Is this the end of all things? I mean, is everything going to end right here? Well, we know that can't be the case because if it is, we'd have to close Revelation Right here, and everything that comes after this point would be superfluous because evidently God didn't write it if time ends right at this point. But we know we have these 12 chapters to go, and there's much more to happen. There's another trumpet that's going to sound. There's seven vile judgments that are yet to come. There's the battle of Armageddon that's going to be fought. There's the millennial reign of Christ, 1,000 years of the literal reign of Christ upon this earth. There's that great conflagration that happens at the end of time when the earth is burned up. So this couldn't be the end right here. So what does he mean when he says time no longer? Well, these words should actually be interpreted as no more delay. So that's the first announcement of the angel. All delays are done. Now look at that seventh verse. He says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. The mystery of God should be finished. What's the mystery of God? Well, that's the most perplexing piece of this whole puzzle that we call creation and redemption and righteousness and eternal life. The mystery is, why has it taken God so long to establish righteousness upon the earth? Why has it taken so long for God to set up his kingdom? Why has it taken so long that after 4,000 years of human history, that Christ came. And now it's been 2,000 years since he was here. Why is it taking so long for Jesus to come back? How much longer is that going to be? Now, the real mystery here is, why didn't God establish his kingdom way back thousands of years ago, man? Right when Satan sinned against God, when he fell, and God cast... Why didn't God just cast Satan and the angels into the eternal fires of hell, end it right there, set up a kingdom of righteousness on this earth? Why does God wait so long? And most people frame that question this way. They want to know, why does God allow evil to exist? And that's a mystery. Well, Satan has his fingerprints all over this world, and he has. He's been in everything that goes on, every evil imagination of people's hearts, every filthy, perverted, nasty thing that happens. Everything that you can imagine has taken place in this world. And so atheists and agnostics will ask you, well, there, there can't be a God. If there is a God, if your God is true, if your God exists, then why Doesn't he do something about evil? Why does evil allow to exist? Why doesn't God just do something about it? Your God can't exist if there's evil. Well, that's a mystery, isn't it? And we have uh, this book that we've had for many, many years, for a long, long time, and it says that there will come a time when all the delays are over. God has his purposes. God always deals justly. God always speaks in righteousness, and there will come a time when there will be an angel who will stand with one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea, and he will say, Time will be no longer. All the delays are done. And when the delays are done comes that great, mighty consummation of the revelation of the day and hour when God will permanently overthrow all evil and perfect righteousness will rule in heaven and earth. Then, the mystery will be solved. One of the things that i don 't usually do i mean i, I, I don 't usually read from commentaries during the message, but I have a really a rather long passage that I want to read to you that really couldn 't have been said any better than this writer and preacher says it. Some of you may have heard of w a Criswell he was a a good great Bible teacher and marvelous preacher on many, many different subjects and Perhaps there's really none better when it came to preaching on the second coming of Christ. And he says something that I, I, I just didn't want you to miss. I mean, it's so eloquent, I'm so stumbling, that I thought it would best be best if you just hear this directly from him. Pay attention to what he says about this. He says, somewhere beyond the starry sky, there stands a herald angel with a trumpet in his hand. And by the decree of the Lord God Almighty, there is a day... There's an hour, there's a moment, there's an elected time when that angel shall sound and the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, the mystery of God shall be finished. The forbearance and long-suffering of God shall end. God shall say to death, this is your last victim. God shall say to Satan, this is your last destruction. God shall say to sin, this is your last waste and damnation. Evil, broad as the river Euphrates, rolls to a vast, illimitable sea of corruption, and every departure from God is tributary to it. Every generation receives from the generation before it these awful and terrible inheritances of iniquity. We pass its judgment on to our children and to our children's children. Is the flood tide to go on forever? Is sin to reign forever? Is death to reign forever? Is the grave to be filled forever? No. God says there is a barrier, there is a boundary, there is a dike beyond which and over which the flood tides of iniquity shall not roll. Evil ripens to a harvest of inevitable reaping. God says in the days of the sounding of the voice of this seventh angel, Satan and all his works shall be overthrown And the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. These things that seemingly work so tragically against us, things that we do not understand and seemingly cannot cope with, God says that for his people in an inexplicable and mysterious way, these things are for the development of our souls, for the strengthening of our lives. They are intended to grow great spirits and great hearts and great men in battles and in challenges and in losses that we do not understand, someday God shall say all of these things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So God would say we're not to lose heart, we're not to be discouraged, we're not to give up, we're not to think that the battle belongs to our enemy and the victory belongs to those who oppose God and blaspheme us. God says behind all the smoke and the darkness and the tragedy and the hurt of these awful hours, there is a sovereign will, an eternal will, God's will. And when God's people give themselves to his holy purpose, God says that even our losses and our tragedies lead to an ultimate final victory. The mysteries of God. Why God chooses that it be wrought in tears. Why God chooses that it be wrought in conflict. Why God chooses that it be wrought in death, I cannot understand. It belongs to the mystery of God. I can just hear Criswell preaching that. That comes from expository sermons on Revelation. And that's a masterful statement, really an eloquent statement. And it speaks to the plan and purpose of God. And if God had worked this out in any other way it could not have produced the effect of the greatest display in all the history of the world of the overwhelming, unfathomable, matchless power of God. God always has a purpose for His trials. I like the, uh, the words that Criswell says. He says that God intends to grow great spirits and great hearts and great men. These things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. I think that puts Romans 8.28 in just a little bit different light than what we're used to hearing it, doesn't it? I mean, we're not talking about the shallow thinking of most preachers on that subject, but what Criswell is trying to bring together for us is that there is a cosmic purpose in God's delay, and it has something to do with His eternal purpose for His called-out, chosen people. Now, I hadn't planned really originally to make four messages out of this first chapter, three messages, or to go on to a fourth message. I mean, I thought that I could finish this all up in one message. That didn't work. And so we have some other things to talk about, and I, I just simply do not have time in the time that we have left to do justice to what's left in this chapter. So I'm not going to go into it tonight. There actually is a B, a C, and a D to your outline that goes with A, but I don't have time for that tonight. So we're going to try this again next week. There there is a mighty angel with a big book who's going to make an announcement. He'll say, time shall be no longer. And the delay that God has put upon the consummation of his plan for this universe is over. And perhaps we shouldn't even call that a delay because to God this is just all the parts of his plan working out perfectly together. See, God already had this whole thing figured out before the foundation of this world. He just started to put it into play. It was all predetermined. And why God should do this, we don't know all the answers to it, but we do know this, that the way that he has chosen may not be satisfying to us, but it certainly is satisfying to God. The answer, I think, to all of this is that this is God's means of of bringing glory to him. One thing that stands out above all others when we think about these things is that God must be glorified. When God created the world, he was glorified. When God allowed Adam to sin, God was glorified. When God destroyed the entire world and saved only eight souls in the flood, through that God was glorified. God allowed his chosen nation of Israel to go into bondage coming out of Egypt. God was glorified. And God allowed them to set up a kingdom and then also allowed that kingdom to fail and God's people went into bondage. Folks, God was glorified. In the fullness of time, the Bible says that God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, and that son came and died on a rugged, cruel cross. And Jesus, the incarnate God, said, this glorifies the Father and this glorifies me. And everything that happened... Between then and now, and everything that will happen until Christ comes again will ultimately glorify God. Now, as long as I know that, and I know that it satisfies God, then I don't have any ground to stand on to say, it doesn't satisfy me. And so all these things that happen to us, the hardships that go on in our lives, the difficulties that we have, God's satisfied, God's glorified through it all. He'll always come out the ultimate victory victor, he'll always be glorified by what he does. So there's going to be this big angel with this little book, and he'll stand upon the sea and on the earth, and then he'll be ready to set in motion those things that will bring about God's kingdom and perfect righteousness upon this world. And then finally, a new place for us that's in heaven. Now, perhaps we'll be able to finish the chapter next week. That's my intention. So we'll come back and we'll do a fourth part of this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to be together tonight. Just thank you, Lord, for your word. We look forward to the time when Jesus comes again. And, Lord, we're just thankful that those of us who know you as Savior, we're not going to be worried about tribulation, not going to worry about the calamities that come upon the world. That's not ours to endure. You're going to call your people out of this world. I just pray that any person here tonight who doesn't know you as Savior, they would trust you. And Lord, that you would save their souls and save them from these awful times that we're talking about that will come. Bless in our invitation, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.